0: Series on the book of Romans, and we talked about the Spirit's help for us in prayer. Sometimes we don't know what to pray like we should, and I want you to understand that that is not an unusual experience for a Christian. Um, But the Spirit helps you and intercedes for you with groanings too deep for words. Sometimes you can't articulate yourself properly before the Lord, but the Holy Spirit takes your mumblings and presents them to the Lord as a sweet sound according to his will. And we know that all things work together for good. Trials and adversity and cancer and sore throats and sickness and family troubles. Problems with with marriage and children being a subset of all things. Am I right? That's a subset of all things. And God works all things together for good, for those who love the Lord. But we have to understand what the good is according to God's will, not our will. Not materialistic, but eternal good for those who love the Lord. And we saw that this is all according to God's preordained, predestined plan that was pre temporal, before time. So it's, pla- it's fixed, fixed in the mind of God, in the determined plan of God. So now we're going to draw a grand conclusion based on everything we've said in the book of Romans so far. So read with me uh, Romans chapter 8, verses 31 through 39. The apostle Paul continues, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, if God is for us, then who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies who is to condemn Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that who is raised who is at the right hand of God who is who is interceding for us who shall separate us from the love of Christ shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. Amen. I could end the sermon right there and that would be a good one. So in this passage, um, we're told that nothing, nothing can effectively Stand against the Christian. That doesn't mean that nothing does stand against the Christian. We are told that nothing can effectively stand against the Christian. No accusation, no adversity, or anything else conceivable in all creation has the force to overpower Christ's determination to see you seated with him glory. So Christ here's Christ is the interpretive lens for Christians. Um, so do we want to understand what God is like and how He views us? Look, ask that question through the incarnation, through the death, through the resurrection and ascension of Christ. So Christ is the hermeneutic through which we understand God, and also Christ is the interpretive lens through which we understand our experiences, our trials, our circumstances. Many, in fact, I would say it's the common thing to view God through your circumstances. But a Christian is freed up from that to view your trials and adversities in light of and through God's love for us in Christ. So that's the interpretive lens through which we view everything in reality, from God to our circumstances here on earth. This, uh, what I, this whole passage is what I can only call a theology of triumph in Christ. So, if God be for us. So, let's, let's look at the passage then, verse by verse. So, Paul, by the way, 5 through 8, Paul has established the multifaceted gift of the gospel. And that's led to the singular, unequivocal conclusion that God is for you in Christ. In verse 31, Paul asks a question, what shall we say to these things? So what things is Paul talking about? Starting from chapter 5, he has talked about the fact that you've been released from the penalty of sin. You should, you should have, not to put it too harshly or too mildly, but you should have been damned and gone to hell. But you've been released from that. You've also been released from the power of, of sin, whereby you are being led into death, eternal destruction, but you were released from that through Christ. And God has united you to Christ, meaning that everything that Christ has is now yours. He's adopted you as sons and daughters in Christ. And he is working all things together for your ultimate good. He's weaving the threads of your life together for your good. And this is based on his fixed plan according to time. So what what do you conclude from that? That God is for us. That's what the Apostle Paul concludes from that. So the gospel of Jesus Christ is the news That those who have faith in him stand unambiguously and squarely in God's favor in and through all things. That's the good news of the gospel. Now the ultimate support for this is verse 32. The ultimate support for God loving us is that Jesus died on the cross for us. So he, that is God, who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him give us all things graciously? So God spared no expenses for you. Spared no expenses. And the son willingly went to the cross to get you, to purchase you for himself. And he will certainly, based on the past, Give us the future inheritance. So what are the all things Paul talks about? Flip one page over, and we see the all things. Verse 16 of chapter 8, that we are children of God. And if children, then we're heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. So whatever Christ has as a son of the kingdom, and these are things that, that we can't really grasp or don't really know fully right now. But whatever Christ has, he's sharing with you. The inheritance, he's sharing with you. That doesn't mean that you're his equal. It means that he shares with you even though you're unequal to him. So, because of Christ, there's no ambiguity, ambiguity about your relationship with God. Now, I think Muslims, um, from what I understand about their theology, a Muslim would spend their whole life serving Allah, and Allah could turn around and say, Ah, oh, you know what? You're out. Never mind. I changed my mind. So, there's, there's this anxiety about the future for Muslims. But that is not so for a Christian. As Christians, we don't need to have any anxiety about the future in Christ Jesus. Our God is a consistent God, and we're promised that he will graciously give us all things in Christ Jesus. There is no anxiety, anxiety about God whether God will receive us as Christians. He has promised it, and you can bank on that. That's the message of the gospel. So God is for you as a Christian. Now, now Paul established who God is. Who is for us? He's going to tell us who is against us now. I think we just sang that. If God is, um, did we sing something like that? Something about the, the enemy? I don't know. Something about the tempter coming and. He can't come against us or whatever? All right, so anyhow. um, There are things against us. (laughs) Okay? So, what is against us? Number one, in verse uh, 33, Paul talks about accusations that are against us. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Paul's point here is that no accuser will override... God's declaration of righteousness in our favor. So there are accusers, are there not? There are accusers on earth, and people on earth will call you a bigot for being a Christian. They'll call you closed-minded and haters of mankind with all the superlatives you can think of. There are those that are against us and who accuse us as Christians. There are also accusers in the heavens. Again, who knows what happens in the heavens? Who knows? I don't want to make the Bible less strange to you. I'm not that I want to make I want to bring the full otherworldliness of the Bible to you for a minute. There's an eerie scene, an eerie scene in the book of Job where the accuser stands before the courts of the Lord. Here's what it says. And now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. And Satan, the accuser, also came among them. And the Lord said to Satan, From where have you come? And Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down upon it, almost shoving that in the Lord's face. But the accuser stood in the courts of the Lord and even held one of God's people out before him so as to test him and tempt him. Revelation says that Satan accuses the brethren day and night in the courts of the Lord. So there is an accuser in the heavens, There's an accuser on earth, there's an accuser in the heavens, but perhaps the most convincing accuser for you would be your own heart because you know what you've done. You you know that you are unworthy and you feel that sometimes. But we have an advocate with the Father in Jesus Christ. 1 John 3.19 tells us, By this we know that we are of the truth and reassure our hearts before him. So how do you reassure your heart before God? For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our hearts. And he knows everything. So he knows. He knows what you've done in the darkness. He knows about that. But it just so happens that the God That knows everything about you is also the God who inspired Romans 8 verse 1 which says there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now if you've been in this church for any amount of time you know that that is not an excuse to go and sin or to live some kind of debauched lifestyle. Just listen to our past sermons And we'll convince you very quickly that the Bible does not just allow us to go and live whatever kind of life comes up from our hearts. We are to kill sin. However, when you do sin, the Lord knows that and he's greater than your heart that condemns you and you have an advocate with the Father. So Paul is not saying that there are not accusers. There are accusers, but it is God who justifies, verse 35. Who is to condemn, or verse 33. It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died for you. There's no death waiting for you. No eternal death waiting for you. There's a physical death, not an eternal death waiting for you. Not a forsakenness of the Father not the wrath of God. So every accusation made against you will have to come up against Romans 8 verse one. Now, Christ not only died for you, but verse 34 says he's interceding for you as well. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised who is at the right hand of God, and who is indeed interceding for us. Christ stands in the courts of the Lord interceding for the Christians. Now that word interceding, entugano, is to appeal to a superior against a third party. I find that so interesting. To intercede... Here means to appeal to someone superior against a third party. So we already said that Satan stands in the courts of the Lord and accuses the brethren day and night. And I still think Satan, in some way that I cannot fully grasp, stands in the courts of the Lord and accuses you and demands to have you. Remember, sin is crouching at the door, and it demands to have you. And he demands the Father to give you to him. Here's a very, you want the blue pill or the red pill? All right, because I think sometimes Christians get up here, and we want to make the Bible seem not weird, you know? It's weird enough. When you read the Old Testament, we want to just kind of Americanize everything. But I think things happen in reality that we cannot see. That's a fundamental tenet of the Christian faith. But in Luke twenty-two thirty-one, Jesus says to Peter, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Satan demanded to have Peter, the one on whom Christ was going to build the church, and he stood in the courts of the Lord, demanding this from the Father. But Jesus interceded for Peter. And it was Christ's intercession. That saved him I think but I have prayed for you that you may not fail so here's what I think if it were not for Christ the charges of the accuser would have stood against you they would have stood against you in the courts of the Lord but Christ entered the courts of the Lord With his own blood as the sacrifice. And now he rules in the courts of the Lord at the right hand of God. Interceding us. Interceding for us. He's the one. He's the son of man of Daniel 7. Who approaches the ancient of days. And to him was given authority and dominion and a kingdom and a people. So, he intercedes for us against the third party. This is what I think um, theologians have pointed to, the covenant of redemption, that God made a pact, for lack of a better word, with Christ. And, sa- and it's almost like there was a discussion happening. And the father says, well, the accusers, accusations are strong against this people. They have defied my name. They have broken my commands, and they have turned the world upside down, these children of men have. They deserve to die. They deserve the full weight of my wrath, and they deserve to be forsaken of me. But if you, my son, my only son whom I love, if you go down and unite yourself to the children of men, And if you die for them and take that penalty on yourself, then I will raise you up and I will give them to you and you will be their king and you will stand before me and sit beside me and represent them in my midst. That's called the covenant of redemption. Philippians 3 talks about the sacrifice of Christ And Paul says,
1: therefore,
0: Christ, God, highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. So no accusation can stand against you because of Christ. And it's only because Christ intercedes for you that the accusation of Satan will not stand against you. To add on to that, no adversity in life. Not only no accusation, but no adversity in life will separate you from Christ's love. 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Let me stop there for a minute. We talk about the love of Christ, and I think, honestly, this concept has, has been a little over-sentimentalized. Because we think about love in such squishy terms. Now, I do want to say that the love of Christ involves a very deep affection for you. He loves you with a deep affection. But also, the love of Christ carries this sense of a fixed determination to secure the good of his people in the face of any and all opposition. It is a fixed, strong determination to see you through into the kingdom against everything that's going to come against you. That's the love of Christ I'm talking about. It's the kind of love that would cause a man to go to war for his people. It's that kind of love. It's the kind of affection, deep affection, and compassion, together with the suffering of somebody that would embolden a firefighter to run into the black smoke of the World Trade Centers while they're on fire to save people inside. It's that kind of affection I'm talking about. It's, it's the kind of love with a selflessness that would cause a soldier to throw himself onto a grenade to save his brothers. So you see what I'm saying? Yes, there's a deep affection, but it's not, it's not a squishy romantic affection. It is a protective, determined, selfless, strong, brave, unwavering kind of love, and no one, no adversity is going to separate you from that, even if that adversity tries to do so. So the point here is that no force in heaven or on earth is going to, no matter how strong it is, is going to override the power in fixed determination of Christ's love for you. So what, what are some things that might indicate to some people that may, I'm outside of the love of Christ. What would make one think that? Paul gives us a list in verse 35. Shall tribulation, whether mental, physical, emotion, or social trouble, will any of those separate you from God's, Christ's de- brave love, Manly determination to see you to the end? Will any of those things? No. Will distress, that is, any oppressive condition, separate you? No. Will persecution, that is, mocking because of Christ, or disfavor or death because of Christ, will that separate you? Will famine, a severe shortage of food that puts you and your family in danger of starvation separate you will nakedness separate you will sword separate you that means someone comes at you with a sword and then cuts your head off in execution style will that separate you from the love of christ no And Paul quotes a psalm. Psalm 44, 22. To show that God's people have always faced these things. For your sake, we are being killed all the day long. And we're regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. This is normal for God's people. Now, I... Can, can we talk for a minute? Can we talk? We're friends, right? Yes. Okay. Now, I read a book recently about prayer that is encouraging me to lament to God and complain to him because of the trials in my life. And the author actually quoted Psalm 44. And which is very interesting, it's the same um, uh, psalm that Paul is quoting here. Now let's, let's look with me. If you have your Bibles, look with me in Psalm 44, 22. This psalm says, starting from verse 22, I'll read three verses. These are three verses I think really get my point across. The psalmist here says, For your sake we are being killed all the day long, Lord. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Awake! Why are you sleeping, Lord? Rouse yourself. Do not reject us forever. Why do you hide your face? Why do you forget our affliction and our oppression? So the psalmist is crying out to God, saying, wake up already. Rouse yourself up. Why are you rejecting us? Why are you hiding your face from us? Don't you see what we're going through? And that book I was reading encourages me to honestly pray like that to the Lord when I'm going through things. Now, I think there is, we should pray honestly to the Lord. And there is a place for some kind of lament. But that is precisely not what a Christian should do. Because we don't pray as people who wonder where God is. We pray as people for whom Christ the Messiah has died, risen, and has ascended at the right hand of God, and is interceding for us with a fixed determination to see us seated in glory with him. Amen? So, when Paul quotes this, what does he say? Yeah, awake, Lord! Don't you see we're struggling? Verse 37, he responds to this psalm, and he says, No! In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. He does not tell God to wake up. He does not tell, ask God while he's sleeping. He says, I know that God is for me through this and that I am more than victorious and triumphant in it. We are more than conquerors through him who loved us. So we don't lament as people who have no Messiah. We do not lament as people who have a Messiah that was just killed. The way we properly lament is people who have a Messiah who is raised and is coming again and who gives us hope in the midst of those things. So you should not pray asking God to wake up already. Let me give you a lamentation that I think you should pray. If you turn with me to Lamentations 3, 16. This is written probably by Jeremiah after Jerusalem was destroyed. And I've always pictured Jerusalem... Not just destroyed, I mean they were sieged. And a siege is when an army surrounds the city. And they stay there for a year or two until all of the food is gone in the city, all of the water is gone in the city. People are starving. And there are even accounts of people in Jerusalem eating their own children, their own infants to try to stay alive as they are being sieged. After this is all over, there are accounts of a breach being made in the wall of Jerusalem by the enemy, by Babylon. And they take over the city. The king tries to flee. They chase him down. They pluck out his eyes. Before they do that, they kill his children in his face. They pluck out his eyes and carry him out to Babylon. These men were vicious, vicious men. Um, And they burned the city and knocked down the walls and did horrible things to the people and carried them off as slaves to Babylon. And I always picture Jeremiah, who uh, it seems went down to Egypt, but I always picture Jeremiah sitting on the mountain that Jesus sat out when he looked at Jerusalem and sang this lament as he sees the city burning, maybe. Maybe smoldering smoke coming up from the city. The walls broken down, and he sees a line of his brethren being carried off into Babylon. Verse 16. Lord, the Lord has made my teeth grind on gravel, And he has covered me in ashes. My soul is bereft of peace. I have forgotten what happiness is. So I say, my endurance has perished. So is my hope from the Lord. Remember, Lord, my affliction and the wanderings the wormwood, and the gall. My soul continually remembers it and is bowed down within me. But this I call to mind, and therefore I do have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. It is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. That, I think, is how we should lament as Christians. And you will go... Through things in life, probably tragedies in life. I don't know what tragedies are waiting for me. But speaking to my future self, I want to tell my future self that the way to lament is as a man who longs for the kingdom and a man who is waiting for the salvation of the Lord and for every tear to be wiped away. And I can hope in him in the midst of that, and so can you. I know know what you are going, I know what you're dealing with, many of you right now. And maybe you feel like your teeth have been grinding on gravel. And maybe you feel like you are bereft of peace And your endurance has perished. And you can tell the Lord that. But do not grieve as somebody who has no hope. We don't grieve as people who have no hope. But but as those for whom Christ has risen and is interceding and whose love is fixed and strong in your favor. Now, back to Romans. Romans. This is a theology of triumphant hopefulness, not of cavalier ignorance of our circumstances. Okay, we don't shove it in your face and say, well, you just got to be joyful. We don't do that. But we do have triumphant hopefulness in the midst of these things because we anticipate what's coming in the future. Uh, One scholar, Jürgen Moltmann, who I suggest you do not read, um, had a good quote. He said, anxiety is anticipated terror. Hope is anticipated joy. That's what a Christian lament is like. Anticipating joy in the midst of your adversity, in the midst of... um, your sickness in the midst of your family troubles hope is anticipated joy anxiety is anticipated terror so it's where does the heart fall the heart has stages I think, and so when when you're when you are um, in the middle of gosh when you're in the middle of a Sickness that is threatening to take your life. My heart would drop. But then I realize that there's a, a foundation under that. There's something, there's a there's a stronger foundation under that. And when my heart continues to fall, it needs to hit, it will hit that foundation. And that foundation is Christ and his promises and the fact that we can hope in the Lord. So, yes, our hearts will fall sometimes and we will hit rock bottom. But it just so happens that that rock bottom is the life of Christ who raised from the dead. I, um... Our country is secularizing, right? And there, there's a lot of strange and bizarre things. I mean, I don't, I don't want to be a political commentator, but I think it's asinine that the many news outlets are blaming Israel for fighting in Egypt right now. If you know what's going on, I heard from last week uh, during the weekend, Israel took three thousand missiles. That intercepted, and meanwhile they're being blamed for violence. It's just, it's, it is, it's like, it's so non-objective, right? It's just, it's just not objective. So anyhow, um, I heard. So anyhow, that's how our country thinks too. Our country is is becoming just clueless about reality and how things really work, and uh, I heard. A commentator say in the next 10 years he believes that no Christian this is a Christian commentator he says that no Christian will be able to work at a major university corporation or for the government in America so what do we do what posture does that put us in hopelessness or a strong hopeful Triumphant, victorious posture. Perhaps it's been granted unto us to suffer for His sake, and to win in the end. I, I you know, there's um, it, it, remember that scene in the um, Return of the King, all right, where the steward, I think, of Minas Tirith looks out over the city, and he sees the enemy coming to his city, and he says, turn back, you know, uh, retreat, fall on your faces, and I love Gandalf, the old wizard, takes his staff and bashes him over the head with it, and says, man up, and prepare for battle. Yeah. That's what we need to do. So the, the country is going down, right? I, I Fine, fine. But man up. Amen. It's been granted to you to suffer for his sake. Thank you, brother. Christian up. Christian up. Yeah. yeah. Or woman up. <laughs> because we're told that God will soon crush Satan under our feet. Amen. So here's what we want. We want a triumphant hopefulness. We will not fear, though the earth gives way. Amen? You're stirring so, me up. So uh, I'm I'm uh, I would say I'm just getting started, but I am closing. <laughs> so so here's what I'm saying: be be hopefully a hopeful Christian, and and lament as somebody who longs for what Christ promised you. And here's the summary statement Paul gives: in in all these things we are more than conquerors for Him through Him who loved us. So what can separate you? I, it's very interesting that Paul mentions death first, because many of us fear dying. But death cannot separate you from the love of God, no angels, no spiritual adversary. Time, things present or things to come, none of those things will be able to separate you. So whatever comes down the pike, that won't be able to separate you from Christ's Fixed determination to crush Satan under your feet and to glorify you. No spatial dimensions, height, depth, nothing will be able to separate you from Christ's robust, unwavering determination to see you through. So this has not been a prosperity theology, right? This has been an adversity theology. Adversity theology means you will have accusers, but Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father. Father. Adversity theology means that you will have tribulation, but to take heart because Christ has overcome the world. Adversity theology says that Christ has made it his personal intention to secure your good in the face of all opposition, for his glory, and he will have the victory. Hallelujah. That is adversity theology. Yeah. If God be for us, who can be against us? And amen. 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 Now, to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, and now, and forevermore. Amen and amen.